We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Are you a broken vessel, weighted down with discouragement, illness, or perhaps a disability? Well, take heart. Whatever your burden may be, God offers treasures that will transform your life. Hello, dear listeners. You're listening to Broken Vessels, Hidden Treasures. And here are your hosts, Paul and Tabitha Norris. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing His mercy and His grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. These words are taken from the hymn, When We All Get to Heaven, written in the latter half of the 19th century by Eliza Hewitt. Eliza was a devoted Christian and a hard-working public school teacher, until one day her career came to an abrupt halt because of a painful, debilitating spine injury. She became bedridden for months. During that time, however, she used her skills to begin writing poetry and hymns. Later, many of those writings, including the hymn, When We All Get to Heaven, was set to music. I don't imagine Eliza realized back then how greatly God would utilize her pain and limitations for his glory. Hundreds of years later, this hymn is still a tremendous comfort. Colossians 3.2 tells us to set our minds on things above. So on today's episode, we're going to discuss heaven. We'd like to roll out the red carpet for our special guest, our favorite pastor, Dr. Alan Brown. Dr. Brown is not only the senior pastor of Parsippany Baptist Church in New Jersey, but also Tabitha's father, and our dear friend and godly role model for us both. Pastor, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's an honor to be invited to join you, and you two are special to those of us who know and love you. And we are so convinced of the value of your ministry to so many people who are hurting And besides all that, the subject of heaven is an exciting subject. So thank you for inviting me. Yes. Well, this is a treat for us. Both Paul and I can honestly say that even though we've been through some pretty tough times, because of Christ, our lives here on earth have been full and satisfying. But the good news for us as believers is that the hardships we're dealing with right now, that's not the end of the story. Our final destiny is with our Savior. But we have a lot of questions about heaven. It seems like there's a lot of unknowns. So this is exciting for us to be able to chat with you about it today. You know, when we watch TV shows and read books about near-death experiences and the afterlife, we get a variety of ideas about heaven. It often looks like a place where we're on clouds, playing harps and just chatting and meeting people from history. So how can we separate fact from fiction? Well, that's a good question. And actually, I have been personally very interested in so many of these accounts of near-death experiences and afterlife and have read a lot of that and devoted quite a bit of time to evaluating that. My starting point, however, is scripture. And what I know to do is to compare and perhaps contrast things that are the experience of individuals uh, with what the Bible declares. 
there are a couple of instances in the Bible that uh, that are very interesting when put side by side with a multitude of firsthand personal accounts of individuals who claim to have had this afterlife experience. The Apostle Paul writes in very cryptic terms in his second epistle to the Corinthians, and it's in chapter 12, about his knowledge of someone who actually viewed heaven, hmm. seemingly so hovering between life and death, but very aware of the immensity of the situation. But this person was, so to speak, sworn to secrecy about the details of that experience. I share with you from 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 4, what Paul actually said. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, many of us deduce from the intimacy of Paul's knowledge in that passage that man's experience uh, and man himself being described in that story was actually Paul himself. In fact, some of us potentially connect the incident behind this event that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians with Paul's being stoned and left for dead, which is recorded in Acts 14, verse 19. Hmm. But here in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, he was not permitted to divulge the details of what happened, particularly apparently the conversation that occurred, whether he was between life and death hovering there, or whether he had actually crossed that boundary and was in a state of physical death, he was quite conscious of what happened. But it was not within his jurisdiction to share with individuals uh, what he understood. So in sharing these details that individuals now in print and in verbal form will declare as being their experience out of body or after death, they're actually going beyond the boundary of what Paul said was permitted. So when individuals begin to share things about that encounter and that experience, I question whether or not they're trying to say more than what Paul was permitted to say. Hmm. And that raises some doubts. I have some reservations. Also, secondly, I point to Lazarus, whom Jesus himself raised from the dead. But Lazarus disclosed nothing about his out-of-body experience, and he was definitely dead. Well, something else troubles me in this whole thing. Very difficult to substantiate the records. I don't at all question the sincerity of individuals who have this out-of-body or near-death or after-death experience but it is certainly very difficult to verify. And so in the end, in comparing things that they say and declare and conclude with what I find in Scripture, I don't see all these items matching up. Right. One of the things about folks who put together studies done in this realm is to compile a list of the common elements 
And in one sense, one might think, well, that's uh, to a degree verification. They all share a similar experience. It must be true. Well, I'm not so sure that that's the takeaway from that. But really, uh, when individuals claim to have seen a bright light and a, um, a very clear in their mind experience an encounter with a divine being, and yet there is no mention of the penalty for sin, which is death, and the punishment that all of us deserve because of that, rather in that place, they declare that they came back to life and now are determined to live a better life than they did before. What's mm -hmm. absent is a person who finds the faith in Christ to be the solution to all of life's ills and the eventual meeting that we have with God someday. Mm -hmm. So the message of the accounts really seems to us ought to be rather than simply great light, brilliant experience, inexplicable peace, a return to life to be a better person, but really what a person ought to take away from any experience were that the case is I need to get saved because there will be an end of life and I will meet God face to face and mm -hmm. sin will be the barrier. But no one seems to address that in these experiences. Right. So according to the Bible, then, what is heaven really like? Well, apparently... Paul's layout of the geography of heaven, which matches so much of what we see even in the Old Testament, includes three levels. Again, according to 2 Corinthians 12, this time in verse 3, where Paul had stated, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Hmm. An early Jewish concept of heaven understood heaven in a singular sense. And in fact, the Old Testament word for heaven is really a plural form, and yet it has a singular concept of being a great place. But there is a genuine plural sense to heavens in the first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. It seemingly is a fabulous place. It is a, a vast expanse created by God. When used in its singular idea, it's heaven as compared with earth. But when referring to the heaven and its greatness, the mention of a first, second, and third heaven refers respectively to the atmosphere where the birds fly. And then secondly would be the sky where the planets and the stars and astronomical elements are. And finally, the third heaven, the throne of God, is residence. What we also find in Scripture is certain things that help us understand heaven a little more. The um, direction would be up, as in Acts chapter 1. Remember, Jesus was taken up. Now, at this point, I can speculate just a little bit. It's quite curious to find certain passages that refer in a directional sense to north, south, east, and west. But on occasion, north is left out of there and three references without spending time there uh, that I'd suggest folks look up would be Job 26, verse 7, and Job 37, verse 22, and then finally Psalm 76, verses 6 to the first part of verse 7. Mm -hmm. And there is suggestion there that perhaps heaven certainly being up 
and north being directionally up from all points on the earth in a certain sense. And then when the Bible fills in some very interesting scientific astronomical information, could it be that heaven is in the north? And that when God comes back, when the Lord descends to rescue his people, does help come from the north? Actually, the Bible describes that. Wow. So I speculate that perhaps heaven is not only up, but the throne of God may be due north. Hmm. Now, when will we experience heaven, you might wonder? Well, upon our death or our release from this tired, old, malfunctioning body, that's when we're going to experience heaven. 2 Corinthians 5 provides some of the details. And the key phrase is there, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, as though a simultaneous happening. Vacating the body, that's when the spirit parts company from our earthly body, and immediately we are present with the Lord. So remember Jesus' promise back in John 14 that we're going to be with him. And he is in heaven. So when this tent of flesh, Paul's using metaphors now, talking about the temporary residence we have on earth, this old body of ours, corrupted by sin, mortal, and it will not last forever. We exist in this body. We journey through life in this body. But when this body falls to the ground, immediately, as Paul explains, we are having a house, mm. not a tent, a house which is another body fashioned by God, Paul mentions, in which we're going to reside until God gives us our permanent body at the resurrection. So you, you can hear Paul's phrasing of this transition in 2 Corinthians 5, the first eight verses. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There are two great things that still await us, and we can distinguish the day that we die from the day that we rise. But the day that we die, we don't cease to be, nor go into a semi-comatose state, apart from God, buried in the ground, sleeping in the earth. No, actually, Paul says, when this tent falls apart, that is, we die, we are having instantly a building from God, a house not made with hands. <laughs> but the resurrection is a unified account of what will happen to all believers at the end of this present age. And we will then be reunited with a resurrected body, which God will fashion and make eternal. So we have a temporary house that God will give us upon death, and we will be with the Lord in heaven instantly. 
But the time will also come when we are reunited with a resurrected body, and that will be ours for all eternity. Wow. What a great day that will be. So why do you suppose the thought of heaven brings joy and hope for the believer? Wow. That, well, I think that's a fairly simple understanding what we realize as Paul was talking about, we're away from God now while we're on earth, but soon we'll be away from earth and we'll be with God. Our being in the presence of a perfect and a sinless and a good God prohibits that anything of sin or of the fallout and the consequences of sin could possibly be there in the presence of God. God is holy, absolutely holy, and he would not permit sin nor sinful consequences and features and fallout to be in his presence. So when we enter the presence of God and of the Son of God, our Savior, our sole focus will be on the one who loved us and saved us and who sanctifies us. And then on that great day, he will welcome us home and we will be home. Remember John 14, verses 2 to 4. Jesus declared, in my Father's house are many mansions or dwellings, possibly rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. So someday we're going home. Now, the perspective of our journey through life on this earth, in this sinful world, homesick for heaven and to be at home with God, is actually a perspective that we share with those early patriarchs. That would include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so many others, as mentioned in Hebrews 11, which is the great faith chapter. And I single out those verses that pertain to those patriarchs. In Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16, these all died in faith, the scriptures say, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Mm. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, truly, if they had been called, truly, if they had called to mind that country or that place from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to reach, uh, return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I love this passage in particular uh, because it speaks of Thanksgiving, those early pilgrims that were searching for a better life, freedom of religion, uh, freedom to worship God as they saw fit. But it also is looking forward just as the pilgrims of Abraham's day were searching for God's promise fulfilled. And they even died before they saw the fruition of what God had pledged to give them. So they were on a pilgrimage. They were on a journey on earth. And Paul now takes that up. And in the book of Hebrews, this author is forwarding that concept and so we are actually strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Our home is in heaven. So why would the thought of heaven bring joy and hope? Because we're going home. Mm. We were never designed to live here forever. And what a place to be. 
here on earth, sin in and around us. But someday in the presence of God, all that behind. So Mm -hmm. that's why heaven brings such joy and hope to every child of God who knows the Lord as Savior. Yes. That brings to mind something C.S. Lewis once said. He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Wow. Yeah, very true. So that leads me to another question. How should the knowledge of heaven make a difference in the life of a Christian? Well, as we press forward, once again, the great Apostle Paul, who I think contributes at least as much as any other Bible author to this subject of heaven and meeting the Lord. Certainly a theme with all of those early writers of Scripture. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, once again in this great book of Paul's, the same book in which he talked about a certain man, whom many of us think was Paul, in the body or out of the body, he hovered between life and death after possibly the occasion when he was stoned and left for dead in Acts 14. But now in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul expresses the goal of our life. Now that we know the Lord in a personal and a saving way, and knowing that we will be in his presence someday, this is what he says. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Remember, Paul is not talking about the great white throne judgment as found in Revelation 20, which is reserved for those who do not know the Lord and will be evaluated based upon their sinful works and condemned to the lake of fire. What an awful thought. This is the we part. This is believers. Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim. He's writing to believers. And we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we can give an account of how we live this life for the honor and glory of the Lord who saved us. Now, 1 John 3, 2 adds to this anticipation that we share as believers in Christ, namely that the instantaneous purging effect that will be ours when we see our God and our Savior face to face, John phrases it this way, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a thought that is. Yes. So with these encouraging thoughts and just exciting to think about, you know, as, as believers being in the afterlife, for those who aren't believers and may be wondering about life and what what is afterlife, how can they be assured that they will be in heaven? Well, we can be absolutely sure, and I take that from the very words of Scripture, as in 1 John chapter 5. This is the same author, of course, that gave us the book of Revelation, and in 1 John 5 verse 13, firmly stated are these words, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 
So it's that belief element that guarantees based on the promise of God that we have everlasting life through faith in what he did for us. Now, we refer to our anticipation of this place called heaven as our great hope. Actually, what we translate as hope literally means in the days of Bible writing and vocabulary, confidence in God. That's actually what the word hope means in its original language. In our culture and language, by hope, we generally mean something with a range of relative uncertainty. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope that, as kids would say, we get off school today. Well, we we can hope, and we might have some level of confidence. I think it's shaping up. It might happen. But actually, what we mean by hope is far short of something certain, but not so with the hope of the Bible. Hope in the Bible, meaning confidence in God, is truth based on the character and the promise of an unchanging Heavenly Father. So I can pass on to you the promise that's built on the creditable source of our God. Whoever believes on the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again from the dead has eternal life. And that by the promise of a God who can't lie. So Heaven, by God's choice, maintains a very restricted population because God will not allow any sin in his presence. Only those who have been blood-bought and washed in by the blood of the Lamb of God who paid the price on Calvary's cross, only those who put their trust in Christ and accepted him as their payment, forgiven of all sins, will be there in heaven in the presence of God. And so our account really matters and we have an account with the lord and all people will face the lord someday but there's only one assurance that we'll be in heaven with him forever and that is do exactly and simply what god said to do believe on the lord jesus christ amen well pastor brown we want to thank you again for sharing your time with us and this has been a wonderful discussion, and we're more motivated and excited about our eternity than ever before. Well, thank you again for having me. Lord bless you. How we prepare for this place called heaven matters. Next time the hardships of this life begin to weigh you down, lift your gaze upward and think about the glorious future God has in store for you. As a child of God, one day all our struggles will cease. We won't be burdened with grief, the stains of sin, sorrow. Instead, we'll see the full picture of God's limitless grace and rejoice in His presence. That's something to be excited about. Thanks for tuning in today to Broken Vessels, Hidden Treasures. It is our hope and prayer that you will find the grace and goodness of God even in trials. We'd love to hear from you, and your feedback is important to us. You can reach out to Paul and Tabitha with comments, questions, or to share an episode with a friend in need through our website at bvhtministries.org.